Alrighty, I've got a question for you. Have you ever thought about those people going on long-term mission? Um, selling everything that they have, you know, leaving friends, families, loved ones, and, you know, sometimes living in a really remote place. At times, needing to learn a new culture, a new language, sometimes even translating a Bible, which is amazing. Often endangering themselves every single day and commonly living on bare necessities or even less. And after all this, at times they're not welcome, sometimes they're shunned, and sometimes they're even forgotten by people at home. All this to be at the forefront of building God's kingdom, living from his provision and seeing faith in action. Now, when you think about a life of missionary, what thoughts go through your head? Do you think to yourself, um, you know, I kind of wish I could be out there. I feel that I'm prepared to endure the cost because I want to have that impact and I want to serve God in that way. Or are you more thinking, honestly, that's not really my thing. You know, I wish I had that fervor, but I could never really give up my security, my safety, or my comforts. So some of you might be thinking the former, and that's great. We've had quite a few people from this church alone who have had that calling and have embraced it. Um, but if you're anything uh, potentially like me, you might kind of be thinking the latter. You, you do want to serve in that way, but you just, you just aren't ready to take up what it means to do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the amazing things that you give us, that you have called us in to know you. I pray that you prepare hearts and minds and that you use me as a mouthpiece. Help our hearts to be open, to be challenged and convicted, and grow us to be a people that love you and are compelled each and every day to be faithful, Lord. Thank you so much for this amazing church, these amazing people, and I pray that you do great things, that we do great things for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Joe asked me if I'd like to jump on the roster this year, I hesitantly agreed. Um, it's been a long time since I've been up here in a preaching capacity. I think it was before I was married, so we're talking more than seven years. Um, but either way, I said yes. Um, I told him I'm not one to say no, and I don't know if I'm going to regret those words in the future. <laughs> so um, either way, I got a rundown of the topics, and the ones that were left were prayer and evangelism, and I chose evangelism. Interestingly, Martin, who was preaching up here last week, if anyone was here, he was... Um, he actually left full-time work to become a full-time missionary, and now he's going to start full-time Bible college this year. And he chose to speak on money, and me, who's the corporate guy, actually chose evangelism. So we're kind of talking on switch topics, but um, for me, at least, that's a really good thing. I didn't choose evangelism because I'm particularly good at it. I didn't choose it because I'm well-experienced or really knowledgeable in the area. On the contrary, I like to share out of weakness, and if anyone remembers sermons I've done many years ago, they usually are areas out of weakness. And the reason is, is because the areas I need to improve on are the areas that God impresses on my heart. So today I want to put up a few disclaimers. This wasn't the easiest sermon to prepare, and nor will it be the easiest one to share. And that's because of, the, that's because of these two truths. Um, these two things are true because it won't be the easiest one to necessarily hear. Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna say some pretty challenging things, things that may convict you. And I want you to know that if that's you, I know exactly what you're going through. And the reason is, is because these are the areas that God has called my life into question and areas that he wants me to confront. So, welcome. Let me share and take you on the journey that he's currently taking me on. Now, with that, 
all got an aside. Today's, the title of today's sermon is, Why Don't We Evangelize? So let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you think of the gospel message? If you would ask some friends outside of church, um, they're either going to not know at all, or they might give you something like this. Um, that's my drawing, that's why it's so terrible. Not only is, I'm a, am I a bad drawer, but I, my stylus actually ran out of batteries the night that I was doing slides, so I actually drew this with my finger <laughs> on a laptop. But um, basically, when we, a lot of people think, especially our church, they think about uh, what the Christian message is. They kind of think that we are who we are, and we're going to go along life on some sort of journey. And then they say, either based on the decisions that we make, the good things or bad things that we do, sometimes who we believe in or what we believe in, we're going to go to heaven or earth, or heaven or hell. And um, this is actually not that accurate. And some of you are giving me that look where you're thinking, well, that's kind of exactly what I thought the Christian message was. And there was a time where I definitely thought the same thing. But in reality... The story's not about us. Um, there's, there's so much of a wider narrative than what do we do in our lives. And we're not exactly going anywhere. There's none of this, um, are we going to leave earth to go to heaven? In fact, the, the good news or the gospel is so much more than what happens when we die. It's so much more than what we call the gospel, which is the first four books of the New Testament. In fact, the gospel message is the entirety of the Bible. It doesn't start in the New Testament, but in fact, it goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So let's start from the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as he continued to build out the heavens and the earth, we know it was good. He said it was good. And this is kind of what it looked like where man and woman were coexisting with God. And you know, God was walking around and Adam and Eve were there and Due to our ability to act autonomously, the consequences of our actions, sin or hell or evil or whatever you want to call it, um, sin was, that was born. And as a result, the heavens and earth could no longer coexist. And so that's what it kind of looks like. Now, this isn't good because we know what was before was good. So God has a plan to restore us back to that first image, the heavens and earth, back to its original state. And many times in the Bible, you see the words reconciliation or reconcile or things like that. But this is currently, this, this whole getting back to that first image, that's still in the execution phase. So actually right now, where we live right now, is a partial reconciliation. It's kind of a glimpse of heaven and earth where they're kind of overlapped. And you might say, well, what does that, what does that kind of look like? And, and where do we see this in life? Well, probably the the best imagery that you'll get is when you read the Old Testament and you think about things like Solomon's temple and the tabernacle, anywhere with a holy of holies where man can meet with God. And you'll notice that when you read this in the Bible, they actually have really descript specifications between how they're built. They're saying, you know, it must be this long, it must be made of this material, you must have these things. And basically it's God wanting them to build an area which demonstrated parts of heaven and demonstrated parts of earth to represent this reconciliation. And you'll see there's gold, there's cherubim, there's all the things that we associate with heaven, with the heavens, should I say, and things that are related to earth. And 
And that's, that, and that's how he portrays this crossover to us. But the thing is, we know that the heavens and the earth can't be reconciled while there's sin. And so basically, this overlap that you see is kind of available because of animal sacrifices and, in the last 2,000 years, Jesus. But while Jesus has ultimately defeated evil and sin, the story isn't over yet because, as you know, there's still actually sin in this world, and this is currently still being dealt with today. But there is a time where God will deal with sin completely. Sin, hell, evil, whatever you want to call it, will be cast out of this world, and that's going to happen in two ways. So the sin has to go. Either God will take the sin out of us through our faith in Jesus Christ, or we and the sin together will be removed because God honors our decision to live autonomously. And so once that sin is removed, heaven and earth will be reconciled again, and this is what we refer to as the kingdom of heaven, with sin outside. And this actually is the gospel message. Now, if you go back to your Bible and start to read through the verses with this view of the gospel, um, you'll find that while a lot of it did make a lot of sense before, you're probably going to find a lot of it makes a lot more sense now. For example, Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's many verses in the Bible that go something similar, like the kingdom of God is coming, or it's near, or it's at hand. And this is because we're in that crossover zone, and Christ and Jesus is dealing with sin. Isaiah 65, 17 says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And that creation of the new heavens and the earth, it's not there is an old earth and we're going to be leaving that for heaven, but it's instead that he'll create a new heavens and earth, and that's that kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that you're seeing there. Matthew eight twelve says, But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is alluding to the removal of those of unrepentant sin, being cast out of the kingdom of heaven and earth when Christ returns and all is reconciled. And even in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, it says, Your kingdom come, and that's talking about that reconciliation. His kingdom is coming. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, both in earth and heaven. And finally, Daniel 2, 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So this is the kingdom of heaven that will be established. So you can keep on reading, and actually if you read the New Testament um, with this in light of you like I did um, some time ago, you will find it, it just seems to make a lot more sense because I think the story is a little clearer. But the question is, why am I sharing this today? Well, first of all, we're talking about evangelism. So it makes sense for me to lay down the foundation of the gospel message. And in the past, I think in MCs and um, communion, we've kind of talked about reconciliation and restoration. I never had a formal, um, a, real form, a real forum to unpack it a little, so that's what I thought I'd do this morning. But secondly, I wanted to emphasize that evangelism is not just about someone going to heaven or hell. Um, it's not just one small part of the Bible. It's not just one small ministry that you can choose to partake in or not partake in, um, but actually it's the entirety of the Bible. It's... It goes from Genesis to Revelation. It's a story of what is currently happening in this world, and it's a story that God is using to build His kingdom. So earlier on I asked you, what did you think about the missionary life, and was it for you? Now, 
you may not need to leave this country, you may not need to go to the remotest areas of the world, and you might need to suffer the same hardships that a lot of missionaries have suffered. But I can tell you now that evangelism is for everyone. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, All this is from God. Paul is talking about us as a new creation, by the way. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, we know God wants to show his message through us, and we know he wants us all involved. And the entire Bible and everything we know about us being a Christian is around this good news. So this kind of brings me back to the title of the sermon, Why Don't We Evangelize? And you might be thinking, maybe you do, and that's fantastic, and honestly, that is amazing. But I can confidently say, knowing me and, and talking about a whole, like, you know, looking at the state of the church in the Western, um, when in the Western countries like Australia, uh, we see declining church attendance, we also see there's a falling standard in domestic and social policy. And then when I think about all these things, there are a lot of extremely faithful people out there, but when I think about myself and when I think about the body of Christ as a whole, I can almost confidently say, we don't really do this. So today I want to get to the heart of the issue. But first let me tell you about a story recently. So I've got this friend, uh, one of my closest friends, his name's Kelso, you guys might know him, and about two weeks ago he stumbled across something that's amazing, all right? Like, honestly amazing. And it's, it's something that was going for sale, and it's never been sold before in Australia, and it may never, ever be sold again. But there's this, there's this crazy catch. It's going to be sold online. The date was 15th of January. It was a Wednesday, 9 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Very important. The biggest catch was there's only 200 of these available. And so when I got... When I got told by Kelso about this, we kind of looked at each other and we kind of shared that look. You know that look where, oh man, we got to get this. Like, we really need to get this. And so, what, and so one week passed, and then it was the 14th. It was the day before. So I went to bed early, very uncommon. I went to bed early so I could wake up early. And I woke up early so I could drop Joshy at daycare early. And I dropped him early at daycare so I could get to work early because I wanted to get to work before 9 a.m., um, that's, that's considered early for me. And the thing is, it's online, so you might be wondering, why don't I just use my phone? Well, the thing is, I was taking the metro in, and, and I just couldn't take the chance that I would drop out of the internet when I'm in the tunnel or something, because it, it was just too much at risk. You know, I, I needed that sweet, sweet corporate bandwidth. And so basically, I hit Winyard, I run to my office, I go, I go straight up to level 18, I walk through the kitchen, I don't make coffee, I don't stop at the breakfast station or anything like that, I go straight to my desk, it's 8.57am. I know, I know. <laughs> I open the laptop, I drop it onto the dock, because I need it on the screen, I need my mouse, none of this trackpad rubbish, and then I open my task manager, control, delete, and I kill everything that would use network bandwidth. All right, and then I open my browser, I go to incognito mode because I don't want this back-end redundant processing like they kind of do, so incognito mode makes your browser slightly faster, and I punch in the website, and it's almost 9 a.m., and so I'm watching the timer, three, two, one, click, 
And inevitably, of course it does, the website's crashed because everybody's trying to get into this thing. And apparently 80,000 people hit the site in that hour. Um, probably they usually get about four people. So I keep on refreshing, and I'm ringing Kelso, and we got the same issue. And, and, and work's not really an issue. When I was in the train, I blocked out my calendar. You know, there's no meetings or anything like that. <laughs> I was really focused. Um, and we keep on refreshing. I ring Kelso, and I'm like, hey, man, it's not working. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm seeing the same thing. And what we eventually realize is there are five screens between the home page and the payment confirmation screen. And so you get to pay screen one, and then it will die. And you're like, oh man. And then you get to screen two if you're lucky. And then now we got the link, so now we can keep refreshing from screen two. And then we're kind of stacking that, and eventually Kelso gets the opportunity to buy two. And so he buys one for me, he buys one for him. Jono's also lucky, he gets to pick one up too, because he's got all his colleagues at work spamming the refresh trying to get him one. And so eventually we end up with what we want to get. And seconds later, because there's a counter you can see on the screen, they're sold out, probably like three or four seconds after Kelso got it. So do you want to know what we bought? I assume. Yeah. <laughs> so there is this Italian restaurant in the city. It's got a couple of branches there, and it's one of our favorites. It's got authentic upmarket pizzas, pastas, you know, like ones where you can actually get lobsters, crabs, and, um, and slow-cooked beef and all that on your pizzas and pastas. And basically, um, we bought a pass, three of us, that allow us to get one free meal a day, pizza, pasta, or salad, not for a month, not for a year, but actually for the rest of our life. So, it costed... $400. Now, the thing is, um, uh, one of the bigger end meals that you can get for free costs about $35. So if you do the maths, you'll pay it off in 12 meals. And we've been doing this for one and a half weeks now. Um, and <laughs> I'm almost already there. Uh, this week, I'll actually have paid off the cost. And then I'm just, I guess I'm eating free for the rest of my life until I die or the restaurant closes down. So we were so excited about this that almost every weekday, from that day until now, us three have basically gone to this restaurant for lunch. So there's one closer to them, there's one closer to me, but when we add the net-net value of walking, they found out the one closer is the one closer to me. So they've been coming to my end. And we've been so excited, we created the WhatsApp group. So, you know, at 11 o'clock, we'll be like, let's get a booking. And, you know, we've booking, been booking every day because there's another app which gives you loyalty credits when you book a restaurant. So we've been racking up loyalty credits as well. And we were so excited. We actually also created a Google Sheet so we could track our meals. <laughs> we could amortize our $400 cost and we could also calculate the diminishing cost of every subsequent meal. So, good times. <laughs> so the question is, very much so. The question is, why am I telling you guys all this? Well, the thing is, I was so excited about this when this came out that I was kind of telling everyone. And right now, I've just got this perfect forum to waste your time and tell you about my awesome life. But the other reason is, is because I'm trying to prove a point. When you're this excited about something, you will feel compelled to tell other people and nothing will stand in your way. Do you realize, I don't care whether you like pasta or not, I'm just going to tell you. 
I'm not going to tell you how pasta works and how they make it. I'm just going to tell you how awesome this experience is. And so, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, for, love, for Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then verse 16 goes on, and then 17 continues into this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So church, if you're struggling to live a life centered around evangelism, as I often am, it probably means that we're no longer compelled by the story of Christ because it's absolutely impossible to be compelled and not go out of a way to share it. And I know this is challenging to hear because if we're not compelled by the love of God to the extent that we're sharing the good news as a foundation of our day, we really need to be asking ourselves, well, why not? And it's really tempting, and I know this because I've been there, it's really tempting to just park this thought away and, um, and, just, and just put it aside and keep living your faithful life. But I think it's time that we step back and actually confront this. And it will take a lot of prayer, a lot of time with God. Um, and it's not something that's an easy process if you take it on. But I think the parable of the sower is a great place to start. So let's look at that today. Mark chapter 4. Listen, this is Jesus speaking. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. And when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And so what Jesus does is he chats to his disciples and he does a bit of a double take on this one. And he starts with this. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Did you know that it's possible to love living a Christian life rather than li- loving God. We can love services, we can love fellowship, we can love the family, we can love the Bible studies and everything about being a Christian without actually being one. And I've heard stories from people who have preached before or I've talked to before who for many years thought they were Christian only to just realize they now consider themselves a Christian. And then Jesus continues on. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Do we find evangelism too difficult or are we kind of scared of what people will think? How it will impact our relationships, how it will impact our careers or what people will think of us? What Jesus is saying here is that if our foundation in Christ and the word isn't deep enough and isn't refined enough, these things can turn us away from sharing. In other words, the fear in us can be greater than our spiritual maturity or our faith. And then we continue on. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, 
but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things to come in, choke the word and make it unfruitful. And finally, the one that I think many people in a Western world can relate to, including myself, are we so enthralled by the things of the world? Money, career, stock portfolios, properties, fun, relationships, sports, hobbies, that we've substituted the joy of the gospel by chasing these things. And the thing is, there's nothing wrong with these things. Martin spoke only last week about money, and he said it was a good thing, and all these things that I mentioned are good things. But these things can also fade our ability to be compelled by Christ and share his word. It's the love of these things that do that. And, and I really like how Jesus puts it there, like, pointer's not working, there it is. And he talks about the deceitfulness. And I really like the translation, how it talks about deceitfulness, because that's exactly what it is. Like, those things bring joy and, and they bring fulfillment, but they don't bring lasting fulfillment. Once, once they serve their purpose in our lives, they're nothing but a distraction. And finally, if we can overcome all these things, it leaves only one thing, someone who is unhindered to share the gospel every day or in their life. It said, others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And here's the interesting thing about that. There is no seed that falls upon good soil that doesn't produce a crop. So if we're not producing the crop of the 30, 60, or 100 times, it means we're still somewhere in the above three. So what does it mean then to be compelled? Or what does it mean to produce a crop of 30, 60, or 100 times? It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a missionary. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It doesn't mean you have to do anything crazily drastic. Or well, maybe not from an obvious point of view. But instead, what it does mean is it means we should be positioning our life with the intention to be, to be building God's kingdom. And if you do that, you will inevitably produce a crop of 30, 60, or 100 times. Let me show you what I mean by this. This is kind of like how we prioritize things in our life. We say, I want X, so I'm going to do Y to position myself to achieve Z. So, for example, if I just populate it with some common things that I think we might see in life is, I want to improve my quality of life. That's probably the most resounding thing that you would hear from anybody if you talk outside. So I'm going to study at university, achieve a better job, work diligently to succeed in my job, go to the gym to be healthier, save and invest, to be financially independent, work on my character, to be respected. And those are all fine things. But I think if you just change one small component of that, and that's the top part, I want to build the kingdom of God, so I'm going to do all those exactly the same things, there is a huge difference about that. Just think about this. If you lived your regular day as you do, as a parent, a spouse, a child, going to work, going to school, playing sports or whatever, and imagine you wanted nothing more in that day than just the people around you to encounter God. We'd still be, we'd still be doing mostly all those same things, but the difference is we would give people time. We'd give them respect. We wouldn't get caught up in frivolous theological debates or we wouldn't be pushing our standards of life upon them because we would be loving them. 
We'd have little issue with inconveniencing ourselves to help people. The words we say, the things we do, they might be very different. And this is what God has called us to do. Because in Matthew 5.16, he says... Oh yeah, same verse, sorry. Thought I had the wrong one. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And this is the first step to a life of evangelism, just being in a position of credibility and influence. And this is going to happen through how we live our life. It doesn't happen through what we believe. Actions, as we all know, speak louder than words. If that tree over there, sitting by Joe, if I told you that that was an apple tree, and next week it started growing oranges, are you going to think it's an apple tree or an orange tree? Obviously an orange tree. Because people believe what they see, not what they hear. So the second component of a compelled life is no experience, no worries. People who are compelled by Christ aren't hindered by what they don't know. Sometimes I know this, that um, we can get this fear that we think that if we don't know everything, if we kind of get a question that we can't answer, that somehow it's going to take away from who God is. Like somehow we won't be able to represent him as great as he is. The truth is you don't need to know everything or even very much for that matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's Paul talking about the older church. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. See, God didn't use the wise people. He didn't use the teachers of the law and the most educated or the most um, eloquent people and the most eloquent speakers. He used the faithful. And we have the Bible today in a canonized version because of those faithful people which didn't always come or which came from mostly humble beginnings. So the question is, what happens when someone asks you something you don't know? Just say you don't know. And guess what? It gives you the perfect opportunity next time to speak to that person about that. You can be, hey, you remember how we were talking two days ago about your XYZ question? Well, I had to think about it, and this is what I think. What do you think? The truth is, people are attracted to Jesus not because he wins us up here. It's because he wins us down here. People don't come running to God because we found Dead Sea Scrolls and suddenly the Bible has more authenticity. And people don't come to some logical conclusion when you're talking to them or at home where they come up with the reasonableness and the probability and they realize, you know what, God does exist more likely than not exist. That's not how people come to God. They come because they've experienced his love, either through us, through someone else, or through something else. So you don't need to convince people how great God is. You just need to show them. And you can do this through inviting them to church. You can take them out with friends, just in a day-to-day actions. Uh, when we go to that restaurant, Jono and Kelso bring a friend. I found out he's already a Christian, so oh well. But, you know, it's another opportunity. And the thing is, if you've, if you, have you guys ever walked into a car dealership before? Like, when you walk into a car dealership, the sales rep doesn't try and explain to you the inner workings of a combustion engine. He doesn't try and teach you about the manufacturing process. If he wants you in, he'll just toss you the keys and say, take it for a spin. Don't just tell your friends about God. Let them experience him. Remember, we're not solving for this. We're solving for this. And finally, 
people who are compelled by Christ realize there is some sense of urgency. Does anyone in this room associate with being a procrastinator? Show of hands. Okay, decent number. Um, I'm actually extremely qualified to speak on this topic. Um, I might actually be the most qualified person in this room to speak on this topic. Um, let me tell you what I mean. So Amanda and I got married in 2013. This is about seven years ago, as I was saying. And um, sometime along the track, we started talking about having kids. And we weren't in any rush, but um, she did say one time that she wanted to have a first child before 30. And so I was like, okay, cool. Um, you know, plenty of time. We'll just put that on the back burner. Um, do you want to know when Joshua was born? He was born on the 14th of September, 2017, exactly 30 years before Amanda... Oh, sorry, 30 years after Amanda was born on her birthday, <laughs> on the exact same day. But not only was he born on her birthday, I'm a man who will, like, you know, uphold my promise, but he was born 30 minutes to spare before she turned 30. <laughs> and so, it's not some coincidence. We weren't trying for, like, five years, and then eventually it just happened, and it happened to time right. Um, he was actually conceived on the very first attempt. True story. So, I basically, <laughs> I basically left us with one attempt and a half-hour window <laughs> to make sure she had a child before 30. To be honest, I could have waited 29 minutes. But um, king of procrastination, right? So procrastination works a little bit, bit about this, a bit like this. You kind of got a deadline, and you kind of see it out in the distance. And what you do is you kind of stagger the work that needs to be done up until that point because, you know, you don't want to be hit with it all of a sudden. So first week passes, and you didn't, didn't kind of get your points down. And so you're like, okay, that's fine. I'll roll it into the second week. And then... If you think about it like a graph, the amount of work you need to do per day, if you don't do that section of work, you've got to pick it up and drop it onto the next section. And that kind of keeps on going and going and going, and then you realize that you have your HSC three-unit exam the next day, and you've never actually studied, or every single university subject that you've kind of ever done. And I think I live most of my uni and school days with not giving myself more than roughly a day or two to study for any given subject. So the question is, if I'm doing that, how, or and you guys are doing that, I know a lot of you guys did that, how do you still, how do you get through school? How do you get through university? And how do you even have jobs now? Well, the thing is, the seasoned procrastinator has a bit of a secret weapon. It's a secret weapon to ensure that no matter what the deadline is, those deadlines would always be met. And this secret weapon is a procrastination kill switch. I like to call it the ultimate freakout. It has different terms and different names. But basically, what happens is at that point where you fear for your life, all the things that you're doing, cleaning your house, running, watching reruns of How I Met Your Mother or House or whatever, that suddenly all goes away and you're suddenly super efficient. And you pull an all-nighter or two all-nighters and you eventually get what you need to get done. So, problem solved, right? There's nothing wrong with procrastination. Well, not really, you see. That secret kill switch only comes up in certain circumstances, and they only come up when there is a perceived deadline. But here's the thing. There's many things in life that we go through that do not have a perceived deadline. I say the word perceived. 
Um, if you look at my life, people who know me know I start a lot of things and finish very little. Um, my life is, my, all these things I want to do are basically waylaid in life by, by procrastination. So, you know, I, there's many times I've tried to go to the gym. There's many times I've tried to eat healthy. I've tried to learn Chinese, tried to learn Spanish, tried to learn French. Duolingo is awesome. Trying to learn Chinese again. Um, I've l- tried to learn to play the guitar, then the drums, and the guitar again, and then the drums again, and then Chinese again, right? This is my, like, string of failure in life. And... The thing is, procrastination is the greatest tool to live an unremarkable life. Take it from me. It's the greatest tool if you want to live an unremarkable life. And I think as people, we can lose our sense of urgency. It's only a day, it's only a week, it's only a month, it's only a year. But when it comes to the things of God, God has a really different view. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins At the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they're on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, the virgins who were ready, who were ready went, in and with, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Church, a compelled person understands the sense of urgency. You know, the older I get, I'm 34 now, the more I realize that life is fragile. You know, we've seen bushfires, we've seen so many things, you would have lost loved ones that you had not expected. And for some of us, our friends or our loved ones, they, they may not have a week, they may not even have a day. You know, I once heard a great quote. I don't know who it's by. When I look it up online, it's attributed to by a million people, so I guess we won't know. But it says this, we should live every day of our life as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, raised from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow. So in light of this, I've kind of grabbed this tool. Um, It's pretty much used in every single motivational speech you would have ever seen. It's called Life in Weeks, and they usually do it in circles, um, I use Google Sheets, so I got squares. Oh, sorry, I was supposed to jump that. So it's a bit faint, but what you can see is along the top, there is 104 weeks. It's basically two years. And down the left is every single year from zero to 80. And I was just thinking about this myself. And I realized that's where I'm up to. That red dot is where I am now. I'm exactly 34 years old and six weeks. The yellow dot is the average life expectancy of an Australian male who was born in 1985. Because obviously, as you get older, the life expectancy per year increases. Nick will know all about this. <laughs> this is the amount of time that I've been a Christian. So sometime when I was in, in, in just before grade 11, oh, sorry, just before um, HSC years, so I was in grade 11 around December, which is technically grade 12, Um, someone invited me to church, and I don't know how long it took for me to become a Christian. Like I said, we don't always pinpoint and know, but I've just put down nine weeks there. Let's just say that's an assumption. 
And then we go all the way to where I am today. That's how long I've been a Christian, probably about half my life. Now, I tried to think about this whole topic we talked about. Like I, to- like I told you, I'm talking on this topic because it's an area that God's challenging me on, not because I've got this down pat. And I've kind of colored in some squares, and I did that with an algorithm, so it's not real, it's just percentages. But basically, the blue areas are weeks where I have estimated that I probably have not brought up God in a conversation to people who are non-Christian. And the yellow are areas where I might have had spiritual conversations with them. Not great. That's a week. That's not a day. That's a week. So every time you see a blue square, I'm assuming, on average, that's probably a week where I kind of did nothing. And these green squares, once again, just formula, just an example, are what I call call to actions. And that's basically when you've sat down someone and you have prayed with them or you have shared the gospel with them, or you've invited them to church, something where you have kind of put an imposition on their life, because that's the hardest part about reaching out to other people. And I look at that, and for the however many years I've been a Christian, that's, that's, not, that's not very good. And so I forecast this out for the rest of my life. What would it look like? And I'm like... That's, that's kind of embarrassing, and I'm, and I'm willing to share this with you. This might even be aggressive, who even knows, right? But that's, that's kind of embarrassing. Like, if everything we talked about, the story of the gospel that I talked about earlier, if, if everything that our life is meant to kind of be about, and that's my hit rate, and we're not, I'm not talking about people saved here. We're not here to save. Don't forget that. God saves. We're just here to be faithful. If that's my hit rate on a call to action, then I'm one of those people that we're talking about where I said, why don't we evangelize? I wish my life looked a little bit more like this, starting from today. So thank you, church. I'll just welcome up Pastor Joe. He can pray for us. Thank you very much for that, Aaron. It's actually really appropriate what you shared today, brother. Um, and I'm going to make mention of this. We're going to actually start doing a church campaign towards the middle of February, uh, which will actually equip us to evangelize. And so I would encourage you, uh, all the cell groups as a church, to do this. I would encourage you to actually, if you're not in a cell group, to join a cell group, because we want to be able to equip ourselves so when we stand before our Lord, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we want to be able to equip you guys with the tools to be able to go out and effectively promote, share, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for the building of his kingdom. And so I I think it was very appropriate what you shared today, brother. Thank you so much for that. Um, I would ask for you now, uh, I'm going to pray, um, but I'd ask for you to pray for the person next to you as well. Um, Just pray for somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Pray for someone that you are trying to reach out to with the gospel. Pray for the salvation of your family members that are not locked, that, are, that don't know who Jesus is. I would encourage you to pray now, and I'll, 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 I'll close in prayer in a few moments, okay? Again, do that now, please. Thanks.